Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakian. Very excited to be talking about the long now. We have Xander Rose joining us on the show. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Very grateful for you coming on. There's a lot that we're gonna talk about in this episode. For those that don't know, Xander Rose, Alexander, Xander Rose is the executive director of the Long Now Foundation and the founder curator of The Interval. They have facilitated projects such as the 10,000 year clock, the Rosetta Project, Long Bets, seminars about long-term thinking, Long Server, and others. Alexander shares several design patents on the 10,000-year clock with Danny Hillis, the first prototype of which is in the Science Museum of London, and the monument scale version is now under construction in West Texas. And you can find the links in the bio below to longnow.org as well as the interval.org, and also the Twitter to longnow and Xander's Twitter as well. So, all right, Xander, let's start things off with one of our favorite questions to ask our guests. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world? Well, I think um, you know people are rightly um, concerned around things like climate change um, and um, and obviously some of the economic and power shifts that are happening right now. But I think I think those are actually while climate change is going to play out over a long period of time, I suspect the the demographic changes that are happening right now are going to have an even larger effect. Um, so somewhere in the next fifty years, world population is going to peak, and I think um, if we're actually going to do better at adapting to something like climate change than we are going to uh, adapt to a world of a declining population where the age pyramid of mostly young people getting to older people is also inverting. So, um, you know, you look at a country like Japan that this has already happened to. Um, when that happens to the entire developed world, it's going and developing world, it's that I think is going to be one of the largest shifts that has happened in the last 10,000 years, actually. The inclination to want to procreate uh, decrease with the uh, software eating the world, artificial intelligence, robotics, all these things happening. Um, and yeah, that's a really good point that many of us are not thinking about in the long now, in this long-term thinking perspective. I like that answer a lot. Um, all right, let's jump into the journey because we have so many cool images as we're gonna be unpacking along now. I wanna get to that. Um, you were born in Paris, but then you moved when you were one to the Bay Area, to South Salido, where you're growing up. You went to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh and um, the design school, then you came back. And uh, who were you growing up? How did you get interested in the fields that you cared about? Uh, well, I, uh, to be fair, I never was interested in clock building until uh, this project, <laughs> but um, I was always interested in building things. I grew up in this old shipyard, junkyard um, on the, the older Sausalito waterfront, um, and it was, um, it was a place where you could always build anything, you know, catapults and forts and all kinds of stuff, and I uh, was always doing that, and so I... I thought that I wanted to be an inventor and uh, there is no inventor school and so the closest thing is product design and I ended up going to Carnegie Mellon. Um, came back and mostly was doing a lot of digital design work because that was what the, a lot of the work was in the mid-90s um, and still today. Uh, but um, growing up I also knew Stuart Brandt who is one of the founders of Long Now um, and he had just kind of just barely incorporated it as a nonprofit. didn't have any staff yet. And uh, I was talking with him and he told me about this clock project. And at that time, it wasn't a larger foundation. It really just was this idea to build this 10,000 year clock to change the way people think about yes. time. Yes. And, um, and I went on a lot of other interviews, but I couldn't get this one out of my head. I was like, well, I have to 
you know, figure out what this means. And, um, and so then I started down the path of uh, working on the first prototype, and then eventually it became a much larger project. It became a lifelong career endeavor for you, 23 years since 97 building, putting this together. Um, okay, I think it's good to jump into the assets that we have now, and Ronnie will be bringing them up as we go through them. This quote really resonated with me, Richard Feynman, quote, we are at the very beginning of time for the human race. It is not unreasonable that we grapple with problems, but there are tens of thousands of years in the future. Our responsibility is to do what we can, learn what we can, improve the solutions and pass them on. And then on the next asset, these are the types of things that I think that um, when you started explaining this to me, I can see how you got hooked into the long now perspective of thinking. I think, and we could have started the episode with this thought, but just we're so stuck in our 10, 20, 30, 50 year lifetime periods that it's really hard for us to go back and see the 100 billion humans that built civilization. It's hard for us to go forward 10,000 years to see where civilization is going. But to do that, to unlock ourselves from our biological constrained time period is so important. It gives us the reasoning that we need in order to uh, have what I think is a vaccine to ignorance potentially is big history and big future. And this example, walk us through the New College Oxford example of long now thinking. Well, this, this is a story that um, is one of the kind of origin stories of long now. It was, originally it was told by Gregory Bateson to Stuart Brand, and Stuart Brand told it to Danny Hillis. And Danny Hillis was uh, uh, the computer designer out of MIT. He was designing some of the fastest supercomputers. And his whole life people had asked him to build faster and faster and faster things. Um, and when Stuart told him this story, um, it kind of clicked that uh, when they built this, this the main hall at New College, which was new in the 1200s, um, they used these giant oak beams that, that they could get at that time. And then 500 years later, these beams needed to be replaced. Um, and you all of a sudden, you couldn't get these in Europe anymore. And, and this is 1200, right? This is year? now 1800, okay, so 500 yep. years later. Okay. Yep. Um, and they weren't commercially available. And it wasn't until they spoke to the school forester who said, oh, well, we have the trees that you planted. Uh, and this notion that a simple act of scattering some acorns in the ground, but even more important act of actually keeping the cultural memory around that you knew to use them to then uh, solve a totally intractable problem um, with uh, leveraging longevity in, in this kind of profound way was something that um, you know, Danny realized that it's not something that was a regular occurrence uh, and that um, you know, we kind of we wish that our ancestors would have cared enough to plant the acorns. And so what are the acorns that we could be planting now for those people 500 years or 1,000 years from now? Um, and that was really the kind of this bit that gets flipped is like as soon as you start thinking, okay, well, actually, we are going to be around in a thousand years, yeah. in ten thousand years. Yeah. Um, humans are a very tenacious species, and uh, as much doom and gloom as we hear from you know, about the future, it's actually things have been getting better for the last ten thousand years, on average, generation by generation. And there's nothing to say that uh, that we can't keep that going, um, or at the very least, we can make decisions that make that better. Um, and are do are we operating that way now or not is an interesting question. Wow, what acorns were well, the foresight to be planting the acorns um, uh, in thirteen hundred for eighteen hundred, and then. Um, 
and then also what are the acorns now that need to be planted for 500 years. Um, I think a lot of it has to do potentially with the spiritual and ethical growth of us as humans. And if we can plant those acorns now, it'll make the future a lot more smooth. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've learned as we've kind of played in this space uh, is that fundamentally, if you're making decisions that open up choices for the future, you generally, that's generally a good thing. Like we are happy when that has happened in our own past. But when you're making choices that that decrease the scope of what the future can choose from, um, that generally makes future generations less happy. Um, and I think it's a kind of a fundamental, simple principle, but it's uh, it's it's pretty powerful. This idea, I, an example I often give is you, know, you look at something like the the Bill of Rights, which was you know ten things, a couple sentences each, but they're all principle-based words, and they assumed that every generation would reinterpret them. And you look at a modern law that's a thousand pages long, and its entire Every single word of that is devoted to making sure the future cannot interpret it differently than the present. And that just seems like a silly idea, right? Like the, the future always has better information than us. They have, they have much more understanding of the concerns that matter in their present time. We should trust them. Why don't we trust them? Um, and um, so I think trying to find more ways to trust the future is an is a interesting task that we all can exercise. Yeah, it's um, it's also kind of like what are the updates in um, in civilization's code in 500 years that will um, be present, and how can we help make those updates um, more feasible uh, now? What actions can we take? Um, yeah. Uh, also, like things like um, the fifty, like in fifty years, there'll be the the kids that uh, look back at us and say, "I can't believe you were slaughtering billions of animals," and like now we have clean meat. So it's like these types of things. How can we? Yeah, yeah, that I love that thinking. Um, and okay, so the next slide um, is you mentioned this a little bit ago, but that it's um, you. And we'll move we'll move on with it with Ron. That it, um, Danny Hillis, Stuart Brand. Um, Brian is it Eno, Eno, Eno. Yeah. and then um, a bunch of the other, um, and this is this is kind of the this is is this is like the team behind. This is yeah. the board now. The board. Um, I think I think that's up to that's close to up to date. I think we actually have just added another board member, uh, Patrick Collison of Stripe, actually. Oh yeah. Um, but okay. um, so that slide's not quite up to date. But yeah, it was people like Kevin Kelly, who's the founding editor at Wired, um, you know. And uh, Esther Dyson, who originally from Release 1.0 and 2.0, and the conferences that she did. And Paul Saffo, who is, who is the longtime director of the Institute for the Future. Peter Schwartz, who wrote Art of the Longview. It was all these people who yeah. were both embedded in the kind of early generation of Silicon Valley and the very forefront of, the, of when tech really started to take off. And I think, in a way, they were kind of these canaries in the coal mine of seeing the fetishizing of speed only and, and that if it can't be done fast, we're not even going to try. And, um, and that, that, I think, they realized that there needed to be some kind of counterpoint to that. Yeah. And, and that was something that was really important with, to Stuart Brand, who'd been, he'd been kind of hacking culture since the 60s with the whole Earth catalog and, and then did, you know, the, was instrumental in the personal computer kind of taking a turn away from industry and defense towards being a truly personal uh, thing that that people used for for uh, much more interesting purposes than just uh, corporate and defense purposes. So um, it was that group that I think they had an early set of antibodies that 
made them raise their hands and say, okay, well, some problems like something like climate change, for instance, if you were only given one year to solve it, you're not even gonna try. But if you were given several hundred years to solve it, you could imagine how you might start doing something like that. And if we don't put the longer time scale on the table, then we don't even get to try. Yeah, yeah. It's great to have that counter measure, like you said, on the Silicon Valley microprocessors, go, go fast, 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 versus the slow down and think 10,000 year time scale. And that this helps the, the, when you give images like this, it gets people to, to think about how big the universe is and how big our galaxy is and how big our solar system is and how important it is for us to think about things in these time scales. Yeah, and, and one of the early parts of the project was, you know, okay, well, so Danny envisioned this thing. It was a clock that would tick once a year and bong once a century and the cuckoo would come out once a millennium and he called it the millennium clock and he wrote it up in an essay that um, resonated with this group of friends and then it was uh, published way back in the 95 of Wired um, and, you know, some people thought he was crazy and you know, why is this computer scientist talking about building the slowest computer in the world, um, and it was, and part of that discussion came around. It's like, okay, well, it's a th if it's a millennium clock, it's not just ticking off millennia forever. Like, what is our design life? What are we actually talking about for the time scale? And when you look at something like, um, you know, billions of years of astronomic time, it's so dwarfing to the human experience that it's hard to feel any responsibility in that. And if you, you know, if you then scale it a little bit more down to Earth of, you know, geologic time scale of millions of years, you know the 13 million years it took the, um, the Grand Canyon to, to, to be you know, etched into the earth, that's still pretty dwarfing to our experience. But if you get down to 10,000 years, and not just the last 10,000 years, but the last and the next 10,000 years, you see and you start to see yourself and the human story is not the end of a 10,000 year story, but the middle of a 20,000 year story. And so you have this past and this future that you're dealing with um, I think that's, that's really where the long now finds its sweet spot is, okay, well, the last 10,000 years is when less ice age retreated and agriculture started in cities. Let's bring up these assets as, as we're go exploring and them. cities this, started. This yeah, so this was the Grand Canyon, Grand Canyon you were mentioning. And, uh, and, and then the, the next, next one asset. is kind of what I'm talking about right now, which yep. is um, that this is kind of the Anthropocene moment. This is um, when you know, 8,000 BC is really where we start to see civilizations starting to flourish all around the world. And so the idea is that that's, that's the right amount for the long now. And if you divided that up at 25 uh, year uh, generations, that would be 400 generations. Um, and we don't know what gen how long generations will really be in the future. And, mm -hmm. um, but you, know, we can, you might imagine how you could tell a story that got handed down 400 times, right? Um, and that, 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 that starts to feel tractable in a way. Um, but also stretches, obviously, beyond any current institution or organization um, that we know of. Yeah, to take ourselves out of what today is like yesterday, today, tomorrow, to, oh, my generation of these last 30 years, this decade, last decade, next decade, and versus the all of since the first like modern day agriculture um, all uh, from from initial agriculture all the way up to the exponential technology age that sort of view and 10,000 years from now I think this is one of the most important ways to view our world is in this macro big history big future perspective yeah I mean and I think and this this is actually one of the very first things I did at long now is working uh, with both Brian Eno and Stuart Brand, and they were trying to kind of tease apart what are the layers of human time, and um, and how do we know when something is 
being done well in the long-term thinking space or not. And, you know, out here on the, the very outside layers, you've got the fashion and art and, you know, I think even communications technology fits in this now of like very frenetic, very fast. And as you drop down through commerce and infrastructure and governance and culture, and at the very bottom, you know, moving the slowest and batting last is nature, right? Yeah. And um, and it's a it's a good way to kind of govern how decisions are made. And so, for instance, you know, if you're cutting down um, old growth redwoods because you want to make a bunch of money off them up here on this commerce scale, but you're you know you're doing something that's that can't be replaced on that scale, yes. and you're working on this nature scale. Like you've skipped all of these things, and, then, and, you, and when companies have done that, then they you know culture gets involved and says, hold on, wait a minute, we don't want you to just commercialize this, you know, slow, regrowing natural asset, and then governance gets involved and makes laws, and so you know that's when when you shear those layers in a bad way, that's when you know all of a sudden people start going, or oh, this isn't right, we need to fix it, or you know things get destroyed in, in perpetuity that we don't ever get to have back, and it goes back to that thing of like, you know, if you're if you're cutting down those trees. No future generation gets to enjoy them or make any decisions about them, yes. and you've now taken options away from those future generations. Instead and that's again, you should options. have been creating those options yeah. for those people. Yeah. Um, how do we realize that in the commerce time period that people are self-dealing themselves in the short-term 30-year windows, but really to look at it on an, on a longer time scale? Yeah, yeah. That's well. Yeah, and I think you know, there's there are things that should happen. Fast. I mean, there's it's there's great experimentation that should happen. If you're if you're always aware of how everybody failed before you, you might not try crazy interesting things. Like there's you know there's there's an argument for the move fast, break things kind of there is. world. Absolutely. And and there's um, and but I think you should you know the the idea of long now is that there should also be some a check where you're like okay there's some things we can move fast and break but there's some things like you know basic levels of culture and history that we should make sure that we at least have in a safe room while we're breaking some other things over here yeah. um, and so what are those you know trying to identify what those things are are how we might focus on them how you might contextualize um, the work that you're doing in the short term that is moving the needle to what you need to do every day and every week but also is that in an arc that's helpful for the longer term, for you, for humanity, um, or are you, you know, or are you cutting down old growth redwoods just to make a buck? How do we get them as inclusive stakeholders, the future generations, and also the environment as an inclusive stakeholder? The this is you said a clock that was recovered from the bottom of the ocean. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a kind of famous story um, called the it's called the Antikythera device um, because of where it was found off of the coast of Antikythera, Greece. Um, and no one really understood its significance when they pulled it up out of this wreck um, for decades. And um, wow. finally, when they did some, um, they started pulling it apart with X-rays. They realized that it was a very it was parts of a very intricate clock. And it interesting things about it mechanically were that it set back the date that we thought. Um, for instance, uh, people knew about um, differential gearing by 1,500 years, and it's, it's very likely it was coming from the um, the Arab world to to the Greek world, um, and there's never been an object found like it. Um, and it, um, but it was effectively it was an astronomical, not so much a clock, but like a an, like an orrery or an armillary that would show you things like eclipses and lunar cycles and planet cycles. So in a way, it was a clock. It was kind of clockwork uh, universe that it. Um, and the it it showed an early lesson for us if we're if if 
we're going to do something like make a 10,000 year clock that changes the way people think about time, if we were just to make a digital clock, um, A, it doesn't have much drama to it, and B, it, um, it doesn't, um, it doesn't self-document. So if you were to find pieces of it, if you find it wor not working, um, it's very difficult to understand the intent of the people that, that built it and what it was about. Um, so this idea of, okay, well, if we're gonna try and get people to think about longer term, make an icon to long term thinking, a kind of monument scale 10,000 year clock, it should be mechanical, it should be big enough that you experience it in a way like going to the Grand Canyon where you, it's visceral, it's big enough that you're walking through it. Um, and that's, that's how this, kind of, this project really got going, was that idea. And to not lose artifacts like that before the sands of time just dust, turn them into dust, but in order for us to actually take them and understand how civilization got to where it is. Um, the, next, the next slide is also, is this also another part? Well, like, that's, a, that's a recreation of uh, the Antikythera device in, with modern technology. Okay, uh, and the, and the are, other two before that were also parts are, of it. Yeah, right? these were the okay. actual fragments that were found. Okay, those were the actual fragments. Okay, cool. Yeah, Ron showed those I saw. Okay, and then this is, um, one more time, this was a... That's a recreation of, of what it was. A recreation of what it was. Yeah, okay. there's okay. several people have done various versions, oh, cool. but they that's an example. It. Okay, but, yeah. okay. And then what's this guy? Um, well, I think, so some of these are strategies for how things have lasted over time. And so I've kind of been collecting these stories over the last 20 plus years. And um, one that's a curious one to me is this idea of sacrifice or an ablative layer. And, and we see it in nature with something like a lizard that can, you know, a bird can attack it and they can take the tail away and think, and the bird thinks it's now one, and mm -hmm. the, but the lizard grows the tail again and goes on to live another day. And we see um, things in antiquity like um, the pyramids and a lot of the Egyptian sites or the Taj Mahal where um, a lot of the value is extracted out by robbers, but actually there's a ton of value still left in the paintings on the walls and the structures themselves. The Taj Mahal was crusted with jewels through the entire thing. And instead of being destroyed, they spent a lot of time prying all the jewels out, the English eventually, and, um, and, no, and the, the, the structure survives, right? So it becomes this interesting thing. If you have a high value layer that people think they can extract the value out of and don't end up destroying the actual mm. structure and the fundamentals of it. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a principle that I don't know much how to do much with, but I think it's an interesting one where we see it's happened time and time again throughout history. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting principle that you bring up there. Okay, and then you gave us the example with the pyramids, and that's the next slide that um, that people would rob, like the interiors rather, like same thing with the Taj Mahal. So rather than like uh, desecrating the exterior, it'd be to get the jewels from the interior. Okay, and then the next asset is the, uh, the seed vault. Yeah, so this, when I heard about this, um, when I heard this announced, I was really intrigued that they were trying to build this thousand-year seed vault, and um, it has a very interesting and sorted history. Um, Is this Norway? It's uh, sort of. It's a Norwegian protectorate. It's in a place called Svalbard, which yeah, is the yeah, northernmost yeah. continuously inhabited place on the planet, and it's, it's 78 degrees north. Um, but you can actually fly commercially into it. And actually, I think the next slide um, has the airport, what the airport looks <laughs> the like. The airport? as you're about to land. Which is one landing um, strip. Yeah, that's the landing strip. And this is actually the seed vault right here. Yeah. Um, it's right next to it. Um, but um, 
this idea of remoteness was very interesting to me because we had decided to make the clock in a very remote site so that the, our notion was that, you know, A, it's out of the fray of cities that tend to get involved in wars or have accidents and all kinds of things. But it also, it means that you have this intentionality of going to the site and that you have to spend time with the group of people you're going with. That's and right. Thinking about it, you go through the experience, you then hopefully are changed and then you spend the time traveling back like reflecting on that experience and by the remoteness kind of creates this journey aspect to it that I think is pretty important versus I, just a selfie grab it in the city and get out right and so you know this kind of drive-by experience that um, that you get and I think the the other thing that it creates is a level of mystique um, because not everyone is going to get there um, you have to really set aside time and make a trip to do it. Yeah. Um, that it, it's kind of more powerful in the kind of mythic sense than it would be as if it was you know, right in the city for you to just access whenever you want it. Uh, Although and I, it may inspire more people to get to it if it's in a pop, potentially population centers. Maybe there can be recreated versions of seed vaults and long now clocks. Yeah, like actually that, yeah. that was an early notion was the city clock and a, and, and a rural clock. And yeah. um, so right now we're building this rural clock and we have these prototypes places like the Science Museum and even at our offices at the Interval here in yeah. San Francisco, you can see parts of the clock along the way. Um, but you know, I think if you go to the next slide here, there's uh, I think a picture. That's the door as you go in there. But Gosh, the, the, yeah. the next one is um, <laughs> the door. It looks like we're playing a video game. Was out the, in the, yeah. the log book, which I I thought was amazing. The people that were ahead of me in this log book, I mean, it was like Ban Ki Moon um, from the UN and Jimmy Carter. It's like all these delegations that have come to this ridiculous place to look at a door. You know, <laughs> they only open the door every six months. We happen to be there. We schedule the time to be there when they actually open the door. But like, oh, they only open it twice a year. Yeah, and so because they don't want to add contaminants, they schedule all the seeds to go in at uh, at these two times a year. And we weren't guaranteed to even get in when we flew all the way there. Um, and after talking to them, they they let us in. But the um, it's. They didn't design this whole thing around a tour at all. They didn't know that anyone would be interested in it. Um, and I think what's in, what is interesting is that it became this kind of mythic thing that people hold in their heads of, of oh, well, there's some people in the world that are storing seeds in case they're needed in the future. Exactly. And, um, and that actually created a lot of kind of mythic imagery for people. And, um, and it's, you know, it's now it's, it's kind of part of the cultural story. And that's what we hope to be able to achieve with the clock as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so beautiful, such a good comparison. Um, and the, we need more of these around the world, the seed vaults, um, the long now clocks, we need more of these around the world that inspire the long-term thinking. Okay, and this is more examples, so this is Sagrada Familia? Um, this particular one is not, um, I Which think we have the next one? slide is, this is, um, this is the cathedral at Cologne, uh, Germany, and this, you know, uh, okay. similar to the- um, Cologne, the, Germany. Okay. The place, uh, the, uh, the oh, this was the, the first that. story that I told. Yeah. It's, it was started in the 1200s, but in this case, it actually took 600 years to build it. And I think one of the most dangerous times for any institution, even or um, a company or uh, a cultural organization, is that first generation after it was started. Um, Handing it off to one or two generations after that is very dangerous. That's it. That's when it's no longer the cool new thing. It's now the thing my parents did. 
It's not, you know, and, and here in San Francisco, we saw, you know, a time when all the Victorians were all torn down because they weren't cool anymore, um, and then put up all these kind of concrete monstrosities, and now we've realized that we wish we had, you know, more of the cool Victorians. Um, and so that, you have to make it through this kind of trough of unpopularity before something becomes then valued for being old and, and all of that. And so um, if you take a really long time to build it, um, that's one way to kind of look at that, right? You've, you've now crossed that threshold. And, and something like the Sagrada Familia, which was you know, started over 100 years ago and, um, and is now coming in to over 125 years in construction, um, but it's already a UNESCO World Heritage Site and it's, it's a construction site. Like it's still being built, um, which I think is an amazing thing that, um, that it can be both a cultural site and not done. Uh, yeah. And so it's crossed yeah. that threshold. And it yeah. did go through times when nobody wanted to fund it. And we kind of had this murky future. Um, and now it seems to be on a much better path. So it's an, it's an interesting strategy. If you, take, if you go really slow, as long as you can kind of make it through that trough and yeah. keep the energy interesting and keep the... I think in the case of these cathedrals, like, there was always an interesting problem to be solved and people were engaged. Whereas if it was just done in one year, I don't know if they would have made it as far to keep it cool for the kids in the future to want to keep it around. That's so critical, mm -hmm. a major component of it. Um, okay, cool. And then the next asset's another one that's been maintained. What is this one? Um, these are two of the oldest continuously uh, standing wooden structures in the world. And they're in a place uh, in Japan uh, outside of Issei. And um, they're, uh, you know, Japan is singular in its ability to maintain things. Uh, and uh, Kevin Kelly likes to like, his pastime is as you drive or take a train across Japan to look for a single missing tile on a roof. And there's just not one, right? Like they're just so good at maintaining. So these, you know, the, the wooden structures, the, the wooden beams in these structures have been there for, you know, 1400 years. 1400 years for yep. the wooden beams? How did they do that? Um, yeah, and it's a it's a nasty environment for preservation. It's like rainstorms. Yeah, and it's hot and humid, and um, but they've just kept it maintained, and they've replaced little things. But all the basic structure has all been the same. And um, I think that I don't know if I have the next slide is okay. Issei Shrine. It's kind of a and it's a different one. But there's a site next to that one um, called Issei Shrine where they've been rebuilding the temples every 20 years. Um, for um, for 1600 years, and it's in these exact replicas, and that's an interesting one where you have this you know master teaching the apprentice every generation of you know here's how we do this and why we do this, and I think it helps the Shinto belief system kind of remember what it's about, and that this act of rebuilding is is an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. Um, for keeping things relevant. Yeah, Re every 20 years uh, for 1600 years, they're re re um, re renovating. Yeah, I was there in 2013 for the 66th rebuilding um, and um, it's a it's, it's an amazing thing. yeah 66 times 20 right and so it's, yeah it's, yeah it's it's a and they have documentation of like how they've done it and all, it's just it's a, astonishing that's preservation and this is is this again seed vault uh, no, this is actually, this, um, this is the last picture they let me took, take right before entering the uh, Mormon seed vault, or the Mormon um, genealogical vaults outside of Salt Lake City. Oh. Um, and early on when what I started, that? When I started this project, every, everyone was like, vaults. oh, there's the Mormon genealogical vaults. And, and, and then I would always ask whenever I found connections to maybe get a tour, and there was never an answer. And uh, eventually, um, Stuart Brand was asked to give a talk at uh, Brigham Young University, and, and we were able to kind of couple it to a tour of, uh, of the 
genealogical vaults. And the Mormons, uh, the Mormon church uh, back in the Cold War got worried that their genealogical records were going to be destroyed oh. um, in a nuclear exchange. And so they built this amazing bunker that's um, it's, it's right off the left as you're going towards um, some of the snow resorts and outside of Salt Lake City in Little Cottonwood Canyon. Uh, these tunnels that go back into the mountain and they're crossed the other way. Um, but you know, in the Mormon world, they, they want to know all their, their ancestors so that they can baptize them in the afterlife. And so they're very interested in keeping track yeah. of genealogy. But they've done, you know, aside from doing things that religions often get involved in all kinds of culture, they have become the record of all genealogic, genealogy for the world. Um, at least, um, maybe not the Muslim world so much as they haven't really let them into their archives. But um, you know, the reason all the U.S. censuses and things like that are digitized is because of these guys. Um, and um, and so uh, it was another. It was a thousand-year uh, project where they um, they tried to make you know they put it all in microfiche. They don't trust digital technology. Um, and this is the inside? This is the inside. Yeah, I found a picture of the inside. I didn't get to take a picture of the inside. The funny thing, and the, one of the stories that's, that this is about, is that um, often when you're trying to get things to last for a long time, places like where they're keeping nuclear waste or keeping things like this, underground does seem like a great idea. Um, except one of the problems with underground is that you generally lose on the water equation. And that's um, the next asset, that Every single one of these facilities that I've been to around the world that tried to keep the water out always failed. Um, and so really what you get a choice of when you do underground is you get a choice of where the water goes. You don't get a choice of whether or not water is coming in. Um, and so this was the pump that got installed at the seed vault four years into its thousand-year design life. The, um, the, the, uh, the genealogical vault has flooded five or six times. They don't put anything in the bottom four drawers because um, it's, fl it's floods. floods yeah, um, yeah. And um, so um, it definitely taught us a lesson if we're going to work underground that you have to make things drain outward drain and outward, away yeah. from the things you care about. Yep. Okay, and then um, this is another, the next asset. Yeah, this is actually from Ancala. This is a 100,000 year nuclear waste repository outside of Helsinki, uh, Finland. And, um, and so, yeah, we have these, there's a 10,000 year Yucca Mountain project here in the United States. There's these 100,000 year repositories um, and more and more in Europe, these ge genealogic repositories. And they all have decided ultimately that underground is where you're going to preserve things. And it's, it's double so for us with a clock um, because the, the thing that makes a clock inaccurate is actually temperature swings. And underground, you can stabilize the temperature very simply. So. And this is uh, the next slide. Yeah, I think this is the last in this kind of series of lessons. Yep. Um, but this idea of ideology, and uh, this is a before and after picture of the Buddhists of Bamiyan in Afghanistan. And what um, happened? Uh, the Taliban um, spent weeks um, dynamiting these amazing Buddhist sculptures. I mean, if you look at the image, how big a person is in scale. Like these were yeah. these are absolute um, wonders of the world. Yes, and um, and it's hard to imagine a more innocuous religious symbol than a Buddha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was, but it was still ideologically worth it for them to spend all this effort um, destroying Dying, these yeah. these things. And we've now seen this happen, you know, in Palmyra and some of the the later uh, things that have happened in the Middle East, sort of destroying these things as an ideological thing. And I, and again, it's it's one I don't know how to really handle because really long now in a way is an ideology. It's saying that long term thinking is something that we should pay attention to. And um, you know, how do you how do you stop? people who actively want to destroy something, you really can't. And I think the only way you can do it, that you have a shot at doing is you, it's not just designing the object, it's designing the institution and the culture that it is part of that keeps value 
um, and um, relevance to the current culture. Yeah. And I think things like the Notre Dame fall fire are really interesting in that sense where it's kind of refocused everyone. It's like, oh, this is actually a cultural asset that's worth rebuilding. Um, and since it had enough infrastructure and culture around it, it is going to get rebuilt in some way, right? Um, and, but you know, the Buddhas of Amiens are not coming back. Okay, and that wraps um, that section. And then we get into the Rosetta project, which is one of the projects um, along with the 10,000 year clock. We'll get to the 10,000 year clock complexity. This one, it really resonates with me, um, how we have developed a communication tools like language. Um, something like, uh, was it 8,000 8, total languages? Yeah, and, and early on when Danny talked about this idea of building a, a, this millennium clock, um, Stuart Brand was like, okay, well, if we get people's attention around long-term thinking, what do we do with it? And he had this thought of a, of a library that could last for 10,000 years. And, and again, it's the, the parts of culture that you don't want to lose over time. And, um, and when we started looking at that, and we were at the, you know, the mid-90s, and we we're seeing how the world was shifting everything towards digital data, um, and that that digital data, especially then, and still to this day, to a large extent, ha really has no forward migration path. And you know, a thousand years ago, we wrote things on rocks, and a hundred years ago, we wrote things on books, and tens of years ago, we've been writing things in computers. And I guarantee you, the things on rocks and books we're going to get, but the things that have been written on computers, really, mm -hmm. we don't know how those things are going to survive. We don't have a good uh, reason why they will. Um, and um, so. If we're going to store information, we realized the very first thing that we needed to, to do was actually make a language key. Um, and the Rosetta Stone is this great example from history. One of Napoleon's soldiers found it. Again, it wasn't understood for decades after being found, um, but it had uh, two languages and three different scripts, um, some of which we knew, and that allowed us to eventually, after a 50-year deciphering effort, um, be the unlocking key to hieroglyphics, um, which we had masses Whoa. amounts of hieroglyphics in front of us that we could not decode, right? And so this idea of how do you make a modern version of that, and uh, if you move on to mm -hmm. the next one, um, we spent over a decade collecting um, different elements of thousands of languages and then scanned them um, really as images of pages and then micro-etched them with a gallium ion beam into <laughs> silicon and cast that into a nickel plate that could last for thousands of years. And so instead of it being ones and zeros, it's actual pages of information. So you know, in a way, it's like the microfiche that the, the Mormons are using, but you can put it under a microscope and you can read this information. It's not, it's not dependent on high technology, just optics, basically. And this was an early prototype um, that got launched on the European Space Agency's Rosetta mission. Um, and you can see some of the pages the, here. The next um, asset, yeah. The, the final disk also had a side of it that starts with eight different world languages spiraling down smaller and smaller. So it starts at yeah. human eye, readable scale, and gets smaller and smaller. So it leads you into understanding what it is. What it is, yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, and then hopefully all the data becomes useful. So it's, you know, preserving a language doesn't mean you preserve meaning, and it doesn't mean you preserve culture, but it, in, the ca in some cases when you're talking about thousands of years of time, um, you sure would like a primer to help you solve um, some of the basics and, and unlock so if other things were preserved and like in the case of hieroglyphics you want something that helps you with that to be able to preserve language and even like culture at its most granular level over time of evolution is such an important thing to do i think it's going to help us a lot when we're also running our own big simulations and then being able to analyze how um, civilizations evolve that type of stuff 
Okay, and then what's up with the, the next asset? Oh, well, um, the, the early copy of the Rosetta disk was launched on the European Space Agency's Rosetta mission that was launched in 2004, got to the comet, um, I think you can see in the next slide, in 20, oh, yeah. 2014, and has landed there, and is kind of our, now our big off-world language archive um, that's sitting on that comet. So we have an off-world language archive sitting on a comet. Yeah, and the comets, you know, keep coming back around the sun. So I think there'll be something that we likely keep revisiting, which is an interesting clock in and of itself. It's great. Just in case, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, ec extraterrestrially there are acids as well. I love it, just in case. Um, okay, so then the clock of the long now. Yeah. All right, so the 10,000-year clock. This is a difficult thing to actually be able to make. The next, the next slide shows kind of one of the difficulties. Yeah, I mean, we, it's a, you know, on some level it's a material science problem, on some level it's a mechanics problem. At the largest level it's really just kind of a, it's a, it's an art project that we're trying to not only engineer to a high level so that it actually works and has a chance of working for 10,000 years, but also captures people's imagination, is interesting, like if we just made something that nobody could touch and, and was locked in it, nitrogen environment, that would be the easiest solution for us as engineers, but it doesn't actually change the way people think. So a lot of what we do is, is these, in a way, kind of theatrical engineering, but it's, all, it's very grounded in you know, what could actually work. Um, but an, as an example of one of the problems that the clock has that we had to solve, um, the clock keeps both solar time, what's called solar time, and absolute time. And so it keeps solar time, um, and that's how it keeps synchronized um, and doesn't drift over time. It has a part at the very top of the mountain that heats up and uh, a bellows of air expands and we get a mechanical trigger that says, this is solar noon. Mm. Um, but since the clock also has a pendulum that's keeping kind of day to day, what's called absolute time, or we can call it clock time, that is much more regular than the sun's motions, uh, apparent motions, because we're not a perfect circle as we go around the sun. So. That plus or minus 15 minute difference is called the equation of time. And, um, and we need to account for that as if we're gonna synchronize the clock to solar noon to be absolute noon. But uh, if you can kind of move through the next couple slides as I talk here, the, the, um, the Earth is also wobbling on its axes every 25,792 years. <laughs> and it's slowing its rotational rate by about a second a century right now. And that actually can change with climate change by how much ice is at the poles. And then, um, but, and all of that had to get wrapped up into a mechanical part of the clock called the equation of time cam, which is that equation of time as it changes uh, over um, 10,000 years. We left a little bit at the top and bottom. So this is That's actually the next one, eight. A 12,000 year cam, um, so that you have a thousand years to make your new one before you run out of time. So, that's a, just an example of this the kind of engineering that thing it that took. we end up yeah. going down with the clock. It holds both uh, absolute time and solar time. And you have a mechanism for every time at solar noon, it's going to expand air and cause another. Um, uh, yeah, it's one mechanism. It just repeats that every, every, every time, time that there's, at a, noon. there's a, you know, enough solar thermal difference to, to make it happen. And then the shape of this over 12,000 years accounts for, for the precession cycle as well as the slowing of the, of the Earth. slowing. Right. For both in one mechanism? Yeah. And the equation of time itself that, would, that is mostly repeating but evolving over that time. 
but that twist that you see in it, for instance, is the um, it's the largely the um, the processional cycle in that. This is a massively complex like engineering feat for something as simple as oh yeah, meet me here at six p.m. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the clock is you know it do, it it doesn't even really have hour dials. It's mostly astronomic dials and shows you you know the current night sky and sun and the moon and stars. Um, and so, you know, it's time that matters over this kind of time scale. Um, it's not, um, you know, it's not an atomic clock that's meant to divide seconds into nanoseconds yeah. and picoseconds, but just a reference. And, and, you know, back to the beginning of our discussion, one of the design principles that we always kind of look at is like, you know, if we had dug into this mountain and found the clock already there, like, what do we wish we had found? Um, oh, cool. And, um, and so, you know, what you kind of, you, you want to have had those past generations care about you, right? Like, and that's, that's a rarity that you, even with things like Stonehenge or the pyramids, there's not much sense from those objects that those people cared about the people 5,000 years ago that are, continue to appreciate their assets. Um, and um, so hopefully if we do the clock right, people will feel, will feel that love. I love that. That's so good. What do you want past generations to care about you in the future? Um, yeah, how do you want them to, to, to show their care? And if you do the clock right, you show the care that you spent a good amount of time investing into making sure that it was right. The next asset shows um, West Texas, the actual location. Yeah, we're now building uh, the clock at full scale, um, the monument scale. It's uh, 500 feet of vertical um, boring through a mountain and several thousand feet of tunnels that have been put in. And this is the kind of journey part where you hike from the valley floor and you enter into the bottom of the site and you come up through the whole clock and then you exit out at the top and hike back down to the to the valley floor is this kind of uh, experience design of the whole thing okay so you're gonna um the park in the valley hike up and then you're gonna go down to the clock into no you go up through, oh, the, through clock. the clock you enter the bottom the you enter at the bottom and and, and go you hike up through. through the clock yeah so it's kind of architectural Whoa. in scale and, um, all around and then at see. the top do you kind of like see like the clock's actual there's no one place you can see all of the clock it's a it's, oh, okay. it's an underground space but there's a place where the dials are and then but i think the you know the real reward when you come out at the top is you've been underground for a long time and you get this amazing desert you know 360 view um and i think really even just you know hanging out in the high desert with your friends is kind of one of the best slowing down activities that yeah. you can have. Yeah. And, you know, if we, if, if kind of coming to visit the clock gets you to do just that, it's great. And if you appreciate the clock part, I think that's also great. Um, you know, I have a few slides on some of the mechanisms how here works, and how yeah. the clock works. And basically the clock works just like any other clock where it's got a power system and a governor um, it has chimes. I think one of the, the more unique parts of the clock is this part that it has a synchronizer to the sun. Um, and in our case, the chimes themselves also, um, it was an algorithm that um, Danny Hillis devised and worked with Brian Eno on it um, to ring the series of 10 bells within the clock in a different sequence each day for 10,000 years. So the, um, the, it's over three and a half million permutations. So every time you were there and the bells ring, it's kind of the unique moment that you have with the clock that doesn't repeat. Um, that, that last slide, just kind of going back to the materials of the yeah, clock. The and yeah, the materials. Most yeah. of the materials in the clock oh, are, one more back are, um, are 
yeah. are things like stainless steel, special grades of stainless steel and titanium, which can last on these kind of timescales. But one of the unsolved problems that we had was, was uh, bearings, which is the part that allows a rolling thing to roll uh, in any mechanism in your car or whatever. Um, and when I started this project uh, 20 years ago, there was the perfect bearing had been invented, and it was these all ceramic bearings, and they were invented for satellites and aerospace use, um, and they were designed to use it, you know, no lubrication and operate in space, um, and near diamond hard ceramics, um, but they were like $50,000 each, and we we're gonna use thousands of them, and so it never seemed to make sense, but over the last 20 years, they've become much more commonplace, and now they're in like rollerblades and fidget spinners, and they cost $10, and so uh, luckily the kind of development cycle of the ceramic bearing really opened up the chance for us to be able to use it within the clock. And so this is a picture of what one of those looks like. Yep, and then the next And these are just a few slides of just uh, some of the most recent installation work. Uh, and some of these are just stills from videos that, um, that you may have seen of the clock being installed. And we're uh, gonna be walking through this. Yeah, so there's a spiral staircase that, that, um, that was cut into the earth uh, or into the ro solid rock. Mm -hmm. um, we built a 36,000 pound diamond chainsaw robot that ran for two years straight, just cutting spiral stairs. Um, and that's that way that humans kind of walk through the whole clock. This is great. We have something that we can look at in the future. Yeah. While we destroy ourselves now, <laughs> we can, thanks for doing what you do. This is the type of thing where you're, you're, you're building something so that future generations can look back and say, I'm glad they thought of us. I'm glad they wanted to take the time to, to slow down like this. Yeah, and it, it's, it's just as much about the present as it is about the future. So like, hopefully if we do our job right and the thing doesn't get destroyed and, and it makes it and it, it's engineered correctly, that's great. But also I think it's, it's important that we as in our present have and have a, have a way to talk and an excuse to talk about this future. And, and even if somebody you know, decides that they wanna tell us why this won't work, they are, they ha they are engaging in a millenn you know, multi-millennial future by just telling us why it won't work, right? So you know, it's a, it's a, if you didn't have that object to evoke that conversation, if you just wrote a white paper, um, it doesn't really change the conversation and it doesn't, um, it doesn't allow new stories to be told. And I think the, the only thing that we know that has lasted on this timescale is stories and myths. And if we can, if we can in a small way you know, spark new versions of that where people are thinking about the future in a different way, that's, that's really our hope. Yeah. And then, um, so we're thinking on a um, timescale of completion too for people to actually be able to walk through it. When? We don't have a completion date. Um, we have been, you know, we're, we're definitely, you know, further along than we have been in ages. And we're, I think you know, the, the, uh, the installation phase has been uh, amazing for us because we've been working on these things for so long. Um, and so it, it feels a lot closer, but we purposefully aren't working towards a towards completion a, Yeah, towards a completion date. We'll, we want to make sure it's right more than make, you know, saying a certain date that we either hit or don't hit. Yeah, yeah. But hopefully the kids born today will be able to do something like, yeah. One hopes. Yeah. yeah, one hopes, sure. yeah. And then, um, so Long Now does seminars locally in the Bay Area, these long-term thinking seminars locally once a month. Um, well, we have two series. We do one at the Interval, which is at our kind of cafe and bar and headquarters, and, and that's more salon style. We do one to two a month there. And then um, 
we do uh, the the series that we started way back in it's 2003 um, that Stuart Brand has been curating all these years um, that is once a month and is, uh, has done in larger venues from 750 to 1500 seats. Um, but actually the largest audiences are online audiences, the podcast audience. Um, we get somewhere around you know, 50 to 100,000 downloads a month of, of that. And so people, are, that's, that's become the largest kind of way that people find out about Long Now because it'll be, you know, be a speaker that they want to hear and they go, oh, well, what about, the, who are these other speakers? And, and, um, yeah. and, um, and that's led into our membership program that's had over 10,000 people sign up and, um, and it's kind of become the community that, the, the focusing point for where the community of Long Now hangs out and then the interval, which um, as I mentioned, is the cafe and bar that we, we opened up. It was part of our headquarters and it's also kind of a museum. It's also a library. Um, and um, we designed it specifically around uh, having a good place for conversations and as a welcoming place to have conversations that you wouldn't normally have. Um, and so uh, I think it's generally been successful in that it kind of people come there to um, to meet interesting other people as well as um, just connect. Um, you know, it's not a loud bar or a, or a co-working cafe where no one's supposed to be talking to each other. And it's kind of a different vibe. And the uh, 10,000 members now have signed up for Long Now membership, um, 50 to 100,000 downloads a month on the podcast. This is big numbers. These are excellent things. Yeah, I mean, we thought we were, we didn't think that there was much popularity in some of these concepts, but it certainly resonates with some people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I want to see, um, Xander, what are your thoughts on, on this kind of like um, this geopolitical um, climate that we're in with 8 billion of us now, exponential technologies roaring. Um, what do you think is needed um, most to inspire us towards that unity that we come from? Um, I, yeah, I don't I think, uh, I don't know that I'm qualified to say what's actually going to unify the world, but I mean, I think, you know, there's certainly some things that could occur that could do that. Something like, you know, contacting extraterrestrial intelligence or um, a threat of something like a asteroid or comet. Um, I would hate to think that that's the only way that it can happen. Um, but, um, you know, I think the pendulum swings through these kind of climates um, and we see through history that that has happened. And I think we're, we're watching them swing as we speak. Uh, I think the difference now is that we've we're more interconnected than we ever have been. I think that's the most unique thing of our time. Um, you often read about, you know, times of great change in the past and they kind of have, a lot of those writings have very similar vibes to what we, we hear now about, you know, this X technology or this new thing is going to ruin you, you know, it was the parents' generation, it was rock and roll and my generation, it was the first video games. And now everyone says kids are having too much screen time. And I guarantee when those kids grow up, they're going to be just fine. <laughs> and, and they're going to, you know, they're just, they're just adapting to the new technology and we look at it and it looks weird. Right. Um, so I think, I think those are the kind of things that, that don't really matter over time and even swings in, you know, liberalism or, or conservatism. And we've seen that happen with McCarthy and Japanese internment. And, and so there's going to be darker and lighter times. And, um, but I think in general, things are moving in a, always in a better way. Yeah. Yeah. The upward spiral of, yeah. of I don't think anyone would trade like being alive a hundred years ago with no 
penicillin and dentistry. <laughs> Just, I don't buy it. <laughs> to, to go yeah. visit maybe for a week and then come yeah, back or exactly. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. The, the good old days concept, I think, doesn't really li- yeah, work yeah. There's in some, reality. There's something also, yeah, profound to just go visit for smaller periods, maybe. Uh, yeah. Or like those that may have been more spiritually connected at the time, potentially thousands of years ago. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, it's an interesting one is that I think people probably, I mean, definitely were more religious and definitely were in a way, I don't know where you want to put that in the that spiritual thing. But Buddha, w- when there was no TV. Was made, um, like you know, how the, long did it take them to do that in the pyramids and Taj Mahal? Like, I mean... What? This is like thousands of humans and, 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 de- and decades of construction and materials that were, we didn't have these big like trucks and stuff to carry them there. So it's like the ingenuity and just like... And focus, I know, think, is actually the, focus. the, the, the amazing thing. Um, and I think that's, in, I've seen many of these documentary efforts where people have tried to, you know, recreate certain things where, you know, like, oh, it was aliens or lasers or all these things. It's like, actually... You can use old technologies to make every single one of these things, but in every single one of those kind of case studies that I've looked at, the hardest thing was really just the human organization part. And that was, you know, we have like alarm clocks and cell phones and radios now. Like then they were trying to coordinate efforts like the pyramids with none of that. And actually the human coordination effort and focus was the real, that was the real amazing thing that they had. Um, But, you know, I mean, we're, you know, Sagrada Familia is still being built. It's decades in, centuries in. We're two decades into our projects. Right. So, I mean, we can still do these things. It's not impossible. Yeah, yeah. And they inspire long-term thinking. That's massive. Two quick questions on the way out for you, Xander. First question is, do you think we're in a simulation? I do not think we're in a simulation. And tell us why. Um, I just find it, um, it's almost too easy of an of a answer. Um, I think the, uh, it's, it's almost like the, you know, is there an afterlife thing? It's like, it, it makes us feel better. Um, it makes maybe more control that there's something more than, than we know. Um, and um, I think that nature and the world and the universe is way more complex and we should give it credit for that. Mm. And then what do you think is the most beautiful thing in the world? Wow, my daughter is definitely the most beautiful thing in the world. And why? Um, just watching a human boot up and, Mm. you know, both how little, how much is encoded and how much is, um, is, is what you think you were going to have control over and how you don't. And, um, and I think that's, that's the most beautiful thing. Yeah. Sandra, this has been such an epic episode on long-term thinking. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Yeah, I feel very enlightened. I do. I feel like we can build projects that inspire long-term thinking, and that in itself is just what our ancestors, I think, would want us to do for the future. <laughs> yeah, Hopefully. I love it. I love it. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let us know what you're thinking. Also, share more content like this with your friends, families, coworkers, people online on social media. Get talking about long-term thinking, about things like the Rosetta Project, the the 10,000-year clock. Really talk more about these things. Inspire long-term thinking. Check out the links in the bio below to longnow.org, also the interval.org and the Twitter pages. Join them as members. Download their podcast. Get rolling as well in that front. Shout out to Ron Vargas for producing and directing. Thank you very much, Ronnie. And also, 
Support the artists, the entrepreneurs, the organizations, communities around the world that you live in. Support them, help them grow, support simulation. Our links are below to our Patreon, our cryptocurrency link, our PayPal link, also our link to design cool merch like this shirt and get paid for doing that and also to spread thought-provoking questions. Go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. Thank you for tuning in. We will see you soon. Peace.